Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. This week, Benjamin Brandon and Trevor Adams will discuss with me the final book of Eusebius's Church History. This book culminates his long study of the history of the early church, beginning with the period directly after the book of Acts in the New Testament. Most of the history of the first nine books catalogs the persecutions of the early Christians. In this book, Book 10, Eusebius describes the transition from a persecuted to a tolerated church in the year 314. Much of it is centered around the key and controversial emperor, Constantine the Great. This book contains the first known statement of a political defense of religious plurality, as Constantine declares that anyone should be allowed to worship as they see fit. We will discuss at length his possible motives for allowing this in the 4th century Roman Empire based in Constantinople. In this podcast, Ben and I debate the differences between Eusebius's view of history and St. Augustine's. We hope to get to Augustine by the end of the summer, so if you're confused about his ideas, we will have plenty of podcasts dedicated to his thoughts soon. The work I reference is his The City of God, a landmark work in early Christian theology. At a few points, Ben's connection comes in and out, so the quality will not be great uh, in just a few small points, and I'm very sorry, um, but it's just, uh, just a few points, and I felt like it was worth keeping anyway. Next week, Tom Velasco will return as we turn our attention to Eusebius of Caesarea's praise of the Emperor Constantine and his oration for him known as the Panegyric. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right. Um, so, uh, Ben, are you, uh, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we're going to jump in here to Eusebius's um, Church History, Ecclesiastical History, Book 10. Uh, we've done podcasts on Books 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we did two podcasts, one on Book 1 and 2, one on Book 3. Um, and uh, we're welcoming back Ben Brandon, Benjamin Brandon. He, uh, he had actually did his thesis on Eusebius, um, and we're going to bring him in both because he has a good background and knowledge of Eusebius, and specifically next week, we're going to look at his uh, oration and praise of Constantine. Um, so for the next two weeks, we'll be talking a lot about views of history, um, and then we'll be getting into some of the details around which, uh, like Eusebius, how he viewed Constantine. So Book 10 uh, is the culmination of this ecclesiastical history. Um, for the last seven or so books, Eusebius has been cataloging all the martyrdoms for the last uh, 300 years, give or take, um, of church history, um, and basically outlining what we know uh, of this period. I mean, he is the source of Christian history for the first 300 years, and uh, one thing that we wanted to talk about was his uh, actual view of history, how he writes history, what history uh, historiography means for him. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in Book 1, um, but we're seeing the culmination of it here in Book 10, um, and it and his view of history uh, owes a lot also to his theology um, because he he looks to the scriptural text particularly um, a lot from the Psalms and from Isaiah um, to see in Constantine a fulfillment of the Old Testament um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about what that means for a historian. Um, who becomes paradigmatic for other writers of history um, in the church. John Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, Orosius, um, let's see, I mean, there's, there's, there's others, but there are just a few, just, just a few to name a few, um, who look back and Eusebius is sort of the, um, he becomes the way that Christians think about history. Uh, and, uh, and so part of that has to do with looking for um, ways in which um, God is at work in history, 
uh, which is a is a change from from the ancient world. Um, and uh, so, but I'll I guess I'll just start there. So so how did you guys view um, some of this? Uh, his praise of Constantine, um, this this fulfillment of prophecy. I guess I can open up either to Ben or Trevor. Uh, what do what do you guys think of? Uh, of how he's looking at this development, this transition from persecuted church to a tolerated church. I think what's important to remember with these CBs is that being within this time period, um, historians often have a question of how how much time needs to pass before a historian can analyze the past. In fact, if you're in the era, sometimes that might be considered a disqualification for being able to, to write a history about it. So that's kind of getting into what is history. Um, but the reason I say that is because Eusebius has experienced the persecutions. He is, he's living through these persecutions and he's also living through and he's going to actually end up meeting Constantine um, and there's different theories about how close they were. But I think it's, it's important to start off with as if you study any historian by examining their background and possible motivations, uh, for example, as well. Eusebius, he's had a very complicated um, <laughs> reputation among modern historians. There's a, a range, a spectrum of, of views on him. And one is that he's writing his history um, with some sincerity, but as a sort of uh, propagandist, maybe even one hired by the Constantinian court. And that view was, was popular for a little while, especially in light of um, his oration and praise of Constantine, which we'll talk about you know, next week. Um, but I think that that's not, that's not very fair, and I think that that view of him being a propagandist in the uh, narrow sense, in the, the negative sense, is not fair because all that we know of his background is that how devoted a Christian scholar he is. So I'd like to kind of start off by saying that he has lived through these persecutions, seen the horrors of the church um, in terms of the actual members being killed or tortured, imprisoned, um, but the institutions themselves being um, attacked, uh, property destroyed, the actual buildings destroyed, uh, scriptures being burnt. And so for him to see Constantine rise up and restore not just, uh, not just ending a persecution, but actively promoting and supporting the church would be mind-blowing. It would be an amazing uh, miracle. And so I think that that's a proper view in which to understand Eusebius because to uh, us in our modern sensibilities, he seems to get a bit carried away. And that's going to be an interesting topic for us to explore. Is, is he exaggerated when he's taught this new age brought Constantine? Yeah, it's basically kind of how I felt about... I mean, his praise of Constantine was... Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess it, we have the uh, privilege of seeing everything from the future now. So it's like what I know about Constantine, I'm like, yeah, I mean, he was cool, but, you know, like uh, I wouldn't have said all this stuff about him. But I understand it because exactly like you just said, uh, Ben, the psychological effect it would have. I mean, I, I could imagine, yeah, I mean, literally your government is just killing you and then all of a sudden this one leader is like nope it's, it's it's okay now and not only okay but like giving back giving back the church their property and giving them their rights again and not killing them you know that's a pretty big deal uh, so I would imagine that you would have a lot of praise for the person 
you feel is responsible for this. I mean, so yeah, I mean, clearly it would have this huge psychological impact that would change change your life and have you saying things like this. So it made sense to me. Well, um, you know, one way, one other way to look at this, and we'll hopefully get into this by the end of the summer, is uh, St. Augustine, uh, who did not live through the persecutions, uh, but lived in North Africa where some of the persecutions happened the longest, um, happened for, um, at least from 200 onward as far as we can tell uh, from the sources. Uh, you know, we've, we've discussed this as we've gone along, uh, but the real uh, mandated persecutions, the actual... Uh, edicts actually don't really take place until 250, a little bit later, but it, it's clearly going on in Carthage by 200. So there's 150 some odd years of history of strong persecutions of Christians in North Africa, um, and when Augustine starts writing about uh, the kingdom of man, or well, he, what he calls the city of God versus the city of man, he keeps a strong separation. Um, now he says sometimes we see the city of God um, in the city of man, but, uh, but he's actually looking at the Roman Empire um, actually crumbling, so that's also part of his context. Uh, but he has seen this transition from uh, persecution of Christians to, um, you know, to Christians being part of the government. Uh, his, uh, and so, uh, so he has seen this, this transition himself, and he does not want to say that the emperor um, is... Uh, like synonymous, that the two are the same, that there is no distinction between the city of God and the city of man, um, that, that, the, that the Roman Empire is just equal to um, the kingdom of God, more or less, uh, which seems to be uh, what Eusebius is saying. And, um, you know, as, as many know on this podcast, I'm doing my PhD, and, uh, and I write a lot on Augustine, so I'm probably going to uh, be a little bit more in favor of Augustine uh, than, uh, than Eusebius, um, so, you know, it's not surprising that I bring him up here, but, you know, he looks, he has seen persecutions and he doesn't say, okay, now that the persecutions are gone, um, God's will is done on earth, um, you know, sort of, this is, this is as good as it gets. I think this is a great, um, setup because I do actually have some sympathy with Eusebius and I like the challenge of trying to defend some of his history. I think that Augustine's has been the more influential um, and has been the one that has endured um, prominently in the West. And I think there's a lot of reason for that. I think Augustine's is more complex in, in some regards. Um, yet, we have to be careful. Augustine doesn't equate the city of man with the Roman Empire in, in a perfect, perfectly synonymously, although he often speaks of Rome exemplifying you know, the city of man. Um, I think that there is a little bit of room for overlap between the two that Eusebius could have experienced the city of God cohabitating with the city of man uh, for, the, for a brief period. And this is where the great challenge lies, is, is how enduring was that? And it's very confusing in the early church when they're looking for this messianic kingdom, and the New Testament is full of um, allusions to saying it's very soon. Paul was even convinced that it was, it was happening um, imminently. And so I'd like to offer a brief thought that I think helps reconcile some of these uh, this early Christian tension and it has to do with the Christian concept of time and the ages very often when they're speaking of time they're using the word aeon in, in Greek meaning the age, the end of the age and I think one useful way to explore these topics is to realize that there may be different ages 
For example, there's the age of the uh, Jewish church, the uh, Jewish uh, second temple, we can call it. And so Jesus, for example, predicts the end of that age coming imminently, and certainly that was fulfilled in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, and that was the end of ancient Judaism as, as we had known it. However, there's an end of another age, and that might be the end of the Roman age, the Roman Empire. And this is what we see um, Augustine witnessing. And so a lot of the same calamities that happened to the Jews with the end of that age happened to the Christian empire with, with the fall of Rome. The reason that I'm wanting to use those two examples is that we can sometimes say the end of the age, but it could in a sense refer to both ages, and that we can see the exact same prophecies fulfilled in both of the end, those ends there, that the, the plagues, the destruction, the famine, the wars happen both to the Jews and to the Romans when their age comes. So all that's to say is that when Eusebius says there's a, a fulfillment happening here of this messianic kingdom, perhaps uh, he's correct in that in part it was fulfilled. And so it doesn't mean it's the final fulfillment, but maybe it was a fulfillment, meaning that there could be an, you know, an ultimate one at the end of all the ages. Um, but this was the, uh, the fulfillment of it during the Roman age. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, there's a sense in which perhaps Gus, Augustine will have a different view based on patriotism and other things as well. I mean, Eusebius also saw someone reunite the Roman Empire. And that same person, you know, yeah, you know, made Christianity illegal and ended the persecution. So, I mean, there may, it, it's probably a conjunction of factors, I'm sure, of course. But, I mean, I would imagine that would be quite impressive to see. It's like this person clearly seems to be blessed by God. I mean, look at all this stuff they're doing, and look at the very pious and, um, you know, good actions, basically, they're taking, you know, to help the church and give the church back its property and things like that. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and one thing that uh, Ben brought up, and that is similar uh, between Augustine and Eusebius, um, even if uh, Augustine doesn't want to uh, basically see a strict identification between the city of God and the city of man, both Eusebius and Augustine have a sense of the end of history, the telos of history, the goal of history. Um, and so this is one thing that makes them radically different um, from their pagan counterparts um, who saw history as purely sick cyclical, the transmigration of souls. Um, there, was no, there was no idea of God at work. Uh, there might have been notions of fate in history, but those were basically inscrutable. Um, and so now with Christian history, uh, you have these very specific ages, as Ben points out, these aeons. Um, so you have the coming of the Christ, um, you which, is, which has changed uh, history, has changed time, because now we live in this intermediate period between uh, both... Christ's first coming on earth to die for sins, and then his ultimate return, who Eusebius, I mean, to be fair to him, is still looking for, um, and he, you know, doesn't strictly identify Constantine with Christ, um, so it's not this precise uh, return that they are still awaiting. Um, so, but Christians have a different sense of history. We live in this in-between period. We live in this time. Uh, and it's a, it's a linear view of history because it has an end. It has a, a direction in which it's headed. Um, it is headed towards uh, the return of Christ. Um, and in some way, God is at work providentially in history. 
Um, and so both of them, both of them share this. Um, and uh, as I was mentioning to Ben before this podcast started, um, and I'm going to try to to just gloss or to just mention this real quickly so people know that it's out there. But a lot of modern historians, um, following basically in the footsteps of Nietzsche, have declared uh, that history, you know, cannot have a telos. Um, that history does not have a goal, um, and that looking for origination and looking for um, ultimate progress is futile. Um, so this is a rejection of uh, German um, idealism and a few other um, other philosophical movements. But a lot of historians have just given up this idea of a goal of history. And Christians are, I mean, if you follow Scripture at all, uh, which both Eusebius and Augustine do, you have to have some idea of God at work. Um, and some sort of direction of history. That's well, excellent. I, I have, if I could just go ahead. Well, I just mine's part way in question, but also uh, part. Um, well, no, yeah, this really is just a question because I kind of want to understand something. I mean, there's a way in which progressives, um, literally people with a progressive view of history, I would imagine would say, right, things need to get better, essentially. And that we're going to, through our value of human life and human dignity, uh, create a better and better world. Um, I've always thought that that was the view that was linear, that sort of did have a, um, did conflict with the Christian view, since essentially, I feel like at least often, Christians are kind of waiting for everything to go wrong, and then okay. for the second coming to hit. And I've always wondered, and this is going to be one of my questions about this to you too, is things are just getting really good right now for Eusebius. Like, how does he reconcile this? Because I would imagine that part of that imminent feeling earlier was because of the persecution, this imminent feeling of the world about to end. Because, I, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm ignorant of actually why they felt the way they felt, but... I would imagine that once everything got way better, you're kind of sitting there thinking, yeah, this probably is like maybe a partial fulfillment of what's to come, or how else would you rationalize it? Are you thinking, or just maybe we've got to wait a really long time? Like, <laughs> you know, how how do they cope with this? Okay, could I respond there? I think that that's an interesting point you bring up about the progressivism um, and this notion of Christian history. Chad an excellent job of explaining this point that um, without a notion of uh, the telos, which means you know an end goal or end fulfillment, um, that history isn't very linear. It's, it's cyclical, as he said. And so this notion of a chronological linear history is partly uh, built upon Christian foundations. But if there's not an end, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to have this... Uh, this notion of uh, a continuum, of, of it progressing even. And by the way, that's the great, I almost want to say, uh, hypocrisy of progressivism is that, that we're progressing, but try to find somebody to say what we're progressing towards. What's the end goal for, for the progress? Because by definition, if you're progressing to something, there must be a thing that's a destination. Well, the only terms that people usually will say, as you just mentioned, is in vague terms like, oh, it's going to be better, or it'll be good, or, you know, Life will be, and they can only say these these vague notions. Well, for Christians, uh, there is a very clear culmination, and the telos, the end goal, is the kingdom of heaven on earth. In fact, that's Jesus all over and over is he's proclaiming a kingdom, uh, a kingdom of heaven. 
And so for Christians, they're looking to the fulfillment of that kingdom, and that is the goal of what's best. And it's progress insofar as that kingdom is being realized, and it's um, – what's the opposite of progress? It is a uh, – thank you. Regression if, if you're not having that, that kingdom fulfilled. Here's an interesting way for us to put Eusebius in context and to make some sense. Imagine the uh, Hebrews going into the Promised Land and, and having the conflict with the Canaanites and Philistines and how that was a very tumultuous and difficult period. We skimmed past it, but there were a lot of times in which they fell away. In fact, the whole cycle of the judges is just them, them falling away over and over again and being redeemed by judges. Well, when David... Um, unifies the country. Um, it was a it was split into two, just as the Roman Empire had split into two by the time of Constantine, the Eastern and Western. Defeated Licinius. This is the very end of Eusebius's tenth book. Constantine defeats the other emperor and unites the two uh, kingdoms, so to speak, into one whole. And in doing that, he doesn't just bring political unity; he brings religious and spiritual unity. David is spoken of in the highest terms by Paul. When Paul speaks to his fellow Jews of who David is, um, and this is Acts, uh, I want to say 17, he says that David was one who had and sought to do his entire will. That is almost as messianic as you can get. And in fact, the very next sentence for Paul is that, and then Jesus comes from David's line. So that's, of course, a, a point that we're going to see with Constantine um, as Eusebius depicts him. Is Constantine a, a sort of messiah? The answer is absolutely, but <laughs> it's qualified. He's a messiah only insofar as he follows Christ. And a lot of Christians can sometimes forget um, this distinction that, that we are called to uh, follow Christ and to imitate him. To conclude with what, what the point I'm trying to get at is that it's not it's not impious to liken Constantine to a Christ um, because we are called to be likened to him. And Isaiah Isaiah actually referred to an emperor um, as a Messiah. He calls Cyrus by name the Messiah, and Isaiah does this because Cyrus is freeing the Jews from Babylonian captivity, and and that's a lot of people aren't. Familiar with that? Oh, we see David and Cyrus, who was uh, a Gentile, so to speak, as two examples of a Messiah. And so to liken Constantine to that is not um, is not out of line. In fact, it's very much in line with the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah. Well, one thing that I do want to address that Trevor mentioned, um, where uh, as far as I see it, neither Eusebius or Augustine um, really had this view, but modern dispensationalists are looking for um, everything to go wrong before Christ returns. Um, it's sort, and so I think that was one of the points that Trevor made um, a little bit. And so there is this more recent view of history that things kind of have to get worse and worse and worse, um, and that's when Christ will return, which to me is a misinterpretation of um, the end of Matthew, the end of Luke, and the end of Mark, where Jesus uh, talks about um, the... Uh, what what is to come? The ages to come. It's this this little um, uh, prophecy moment. Um, I actually interpret all of that to be referring to Jesus' death on the cross, um, not really about some kind of eschatological end where everything has to get really bad um, before Jesus can come back. Um, 
And so, but either way, regardless of whether or not uh, things have to get better or things have to get worse, history is moving somewhere. Um, it may be getting worse, um, but it is actually moving in a direction, and there is some intention intention in history um, overseen by God. What, like I say, whether or not um, you know things have to get worse for Christ to return, um, there, there's still some kind of um, there's some end game. Yeah, I mean, personally, I I felt I feel like, uh, you know, medical uh, research advancements and you know uh, vaccines, things like this. I mean, I I would I would go as far as to say the kingdom of God is breaking into the world now in many ways, and uh, I would imagine I would like to see things get better. Uh, because I like to see the kingdom of God break in more personally, but I brought that up mostly because yeah, there are modern people who have this dispensationalist view, but also I kind of always read. I don't know about Eusebius particularly, but a lot of these other church fathers seemed to be waiting. I thought for things to get really bad and then uh, you know Christ to come back. So I, I don't know if maybe I'm wrong about that, but that was the impression I got. Could I ask Trevor a question here? So it was interesting in, when we try to explore this notion of an ultimate goal. He brought up the term progressivism earlier, looking for uh, standards by which we can measure this progress. Um, I think that there is a dichotomy that, or even opposition that we don't quite realize sometimes. And one is the modern view of progress that um, as Descartes, and the, our progress is measured by man's ability to dominate the created order. And so he used two examples um, that were both technological, um, like medical vaccines and, and medical advances, so forth. And so I think that that's one view is to measure our progress by man's domination. And to me, that would be closer to Augustine's city of, of man. And a lot of people are going to be like, oh, our, our vaccines like evil. I'm saying that if the goal is man's power, then that's more akin to Augustine's city of man, in which he, he says the city of man um, has a lust to dominate. And the truth is, with our technolo technology right now, we, we do dominate. The city of God, however, is one in which we are dominated by God and by the Spirit. And so it's not that you, you can't have health and medicine, but it's it's what's the standard of measurement. And so it's I was curious, Trevor, did are you kind of equating perhaps our, as a sort of standard? No, I wasn't. Uh, I wouldn't put hospitals over and above, you know, churches or schools. Um, I I would put them in the same category. I mean, I. Mostly what I mean is I I have a view, like for example, if someone walks up to me and says, hey, you want to hop into a time machine and go to a different time, when would you live? I'd be like, I'd like to live right now uh, because I want to like wake up and have a lot of the things I have and not maybe just die randomly from stuff we can't cure and things like that. So what I, what I meant, and this is what I was trying to just bring up, is it has nothing to do with our power over anything and nothing to do with man's power. But what I mean is I, I think 
basically by the grace of God we have certain things now and um, and a part of it's through man's you know rational intellect that we come to discover things but I would I would argue that that's one of the graces of God though that we have that and so there's certain things basically in this day and age that I, I just think like are objectively better and there's ways in which the world has gotten better in that sense you know, child mortality rates have gone down things like that and so I have a view my just view of history in general is just that you know since it's I think right now is a good time to be alive due to yeah technological advancements but also like you know availability of education um, you know the the freedoms of choices we have in modern governments things like that these sorts of things are the things I just think to me actually kind of constitute the kingdom of God breaking in I mean in my opinion but that's what I was saying earlier. I think this is an important point yeah not peripheral to said and I would argue that's very Cartesian he says the greatest good of this a of this world is health and medicine and so forth and so the whole Cartesian of modern thought and so I think Trevor echoes that in saying that we look for the kingdom of heaven with prosperity, you know, our, our, our living rate. And he said he'd rather have hospitals than churches. I think that that, that is a, a modern mindset that makes it difficult for us to understand Eusebius. Doubt, he would argue, for saving the soul even if you lose the body. Um, as maybe, as Jesus says, it's better to pluck out your eye and save your soul. If we're trying to understand this uh, Eusebius's um, sort of coming of this messianic kingdom, we have to find the criteria by our own and say how many or you know how is the economic prosperity, then I think we've missed the point that they'd rather focus on spiritual unity. That's why Constantine's about to call the great councils, the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325. Um, why? Because their goal was to say more important than health is the spiritual unity that we have. And they literally lost their eyes. When we, we, I just quoted that example from Jesus, pluck out your eye. They had, had their eyes gouged out because they refused to um, give in to the persecutors. And that was a, a badge of honor to them at the councils. And so the real fulfillment for Eusebius is that this spiritual progress had been achieved uh, under Constantine. Yeah. Uh, well, let's. I, I, I want to move on from that. Like those are two different, you know, ways to view it. I think. Um, I think a Christian can still be a modernist. Um, and uh, but yes, it is. It is fair to say that uh, there is a radical change around the 17th century with the scientific revolution. Um, but uh, uh, you know. Um, I, I do want to get continue to maybe look a little bit closer at the text. One thing that I thought was interesting, um, and maybe we'll address some of the concerns that I always have uh, with the praise of Constantine, um, and there, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, it's it's impossible to judge his sincerity from a you know a, like you know without uh, without question. Uh, but we and we've mentioned this text on several occasions, um, but here in uh, Book 10, Eusebius quotes for us the Edict of Toleration, the Edict of Milan, um, and so this is the first time in the history uh, of uh, the Christian Church when it is legal to be a Christian, and so uh, Constantine says he wants to grant, quote, grant the Christians and all others the freedom to follow whatever form of worship they please. Why? So that all the divine and heavenly powers that exist might be favorable to us and all those liver, living under 
authority. A little bit further down, he just says, uh, to, or choose, uh, let's see, no one at all was to be denied the right to follow or choose the Christian form of worship or observance, and everyone was granted the right to give his mind to that form of worship that he thinks suitable to himself, so that the deity may show us his usual care and generosity in all things. So um, this is uh, uh, part five of book ten, um, which I just think is fascinating and reads like almost – well, except for that he is trying to pander uh, to whatever god may exist and be out there, it reads strikingly modern. Uh, you you are to choose whichever religion you want to. Um, you are to choose to, to worship however you see fit. Um, why? Because I kind of want everybody to get curry. I want to curry favor with every god that might be out there. Um, like I mean, just reading this. Like I mean, I, I'm I'm reading it cynically, um, but I can't read Constantine and and read about Constantine without just tremendous amounts of cynicism. Um, so it's. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I'll just I'll just throw that out there. I mean, the Constantinian settlement. Uh, to me is like one of the worst disasters uh, in the history of Christian the Christian church. Like I look at this as basically where Christianity went wrong. Um, and so and <laughs> uh, and you know, but like, but here, like, why are we praising this guy who's just so? I mean, is just like, I mean, baldly um, trying to let whoever worship whoever they want, so that he can make sure that uh, that God preserves his power. Well, let's keep in mind. Constantine um, is very uh, young as a Christian, and so, I mean, far from saying, why is he not this mature theologian in his faith, we should rather marvel at the fact that he has just converted. In fact, it was only a year before this, at 312, where he had seen a vision in his eye, the, the, the cross in the sky, the Cairo, hoc signo victor eris, conquered by this sign. He barely knows what's going on, but he believes that the Christian God is, is favoring him. Before that, he had followed the Deus Samus, the highest deity, the highest god. And uh, Constantine, like many Romans at the time, so um, I think that to, to be fair to the Roman religion at this time, everyone is disillusioned with the old gods. The old gods have failed them. Um, they've gone through just awful uh, times as, as the empire as a whole. Um, restoration through this new, new religion by following a high god. And so Constantine realized that uh, use sort of syncretism of saying can we can we like honor that there's a highest God and that we can all follow that. I think he still is trying to preserve unity, and this is actually quite similar to the ancient Near Eastern um, thought as well. That even though you could use different terms, Marduk or Bey, in diplomatic correspondence between Egypt and Mesopotamia, they would recognize each other's high God as the same high God, which is actually not something that we realize often. We we overemphasize the polytheism. So here I think we have to be careful about overemphasizing polytheism when Constantine, before converting, um, acknowledged the highest deity and said that he serves the highest deity. Um, his father called it Sol Invictus, the uh, unconquerable sun god. Um, Constantine at 312 uh, sees the cross in the sky, converts to Christianity, as he's giving this Edict of Milan. And so he's just, so it's only one year uh, in terms of his, his Christian. Uh, and so I think that we're going to see progress um, in his theology and his development. But I think as an initial act, starting off by saying let's have some toleration is a very Christian thing to do. Well, and wasn't uh, his mother Christian? So I'm assuming, you know, there's some ways in which literally his upbringing affected his just ideals. Like, 
I, there were definitely prejudices against Christians, as we saw by all the rumors that every apologist father had to defend from uh, that were flying around about the Christians that were really negative. Uh, whereas, basically, Constantine doesn't have these, right? He he has probably a pretty positive view of Christians in general. And so if he's, even if we do, even if we doubted his conversion at this point, he's still, yeah, regardless, he's he may just know it from his mother, but not have, you know, complete knowledge. And, I mean, he's still, he's still doing a good thing regardless whether he's converted or not, you know, if you're one of those skeptics. Uh, but if he has converted, it's probably as Ben says, right? He He's young. He's new. He's new to the game. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess that is, you know, that is one way to, uh, to read it. Um, he also kills his son, and uh, he does that well into his conversion uh, after 312, right? So, I mean, this is sort of the standard... Uh, I'm just going to pull out all the stops and just uh, just go after Constantine here. Uh, so killing his wife, killing his son. Um, he does this at least a decade or more after he becomes a Christian. So, I mean, you know, he's got he's got whatever bishops he wants around him to teach him about being a Christian, and he's still like, no, let's just go ahead and lop their heads off. This is what I'm supposed to do. Okay, I'll respond. If you want to... Yeah, we can we can delve into some of those. So I, this is kind of cool. So is is Constantine? You know, to what degree is he a Christian? Maybe um, with his son Crispus um, and his his second wife. There's some evidence to point to the fact that there could have been some sort of um, affair between the two. Yeah. Um, there's there was some something sketchy that went on between the two of them. And oh, yeah, Constantine so had just passed a whole bunch of moral legislation. What's that? This is to just go ahead and kill him. A <laughs> bunch of moral legislation which uh, mandated. Uh, very harsh draconian penalties for um, uh, breaking uh, moral laws. For example, he reinstituted laws against rape. There was widespread rape happening, and he, he clamped down on that stuff. So one theory, that, and there's some evidence to that, is that if Crispus and his, his wife had this um, illicit affair, then he was he, uh, enforcing some very, um, this is sort of Old Testament you know, uh, <laughs> uh, law here, and he has them executed. Um, for that, and so we can argue that, that he was maybe being too legalistic, but I don't think that that necessarily is saying that uh, he was therefore insincere in uh, his Christian aspirations. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to judge, I would imagine, but he definitely made some politically expedient decisions that were also immoral, and we, you know, gotta wonder. I mean, how, how do you judge something like this? I mean, I. I think it's hard because people like King David did some messed up stuff too, and I, I don't know who who really knows except probably Constantine and some of his closest uh, consorts. But it's it is um, I, I definitely think it's good to be critical though of like the convenient story that he was just like the perfect Christian emperor who walked in at the right time. For example, he may have legalized it for political reasons, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a Christian when he died, or a Christian for consider himself at least a Christian for his life. And it also doesn't it's really not a bad thing either. I mean, regardless, people this is kinda like what I was just saying earlier about this being a better time to live. It was better to live in the Constantine Empire than it was just, you know, a hundred years back when you were getting killed off. Like so I think that is like, you know, some of God 
the kingdom of God creeping in once again is kind of my point. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I imagine it's a good thing regardless, but... Yeah. I, okay, what I do think uh, is that, that it's fair to point out that Scripture is full of people um, who, continue, you know, who, while following God, um, make mistakes or do things that we would consider uh, wrong and immoral. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like, I think that the Bible is a fascinating book as much because the people who wrote it did terrible things as because they did good things. Um, and, and so, I mean, you know, Christian history is littered with people who do awful things, um, but who write really good things. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say that just because they do something bad that they can't say something good or they can't be a part of something good as well. And so I do, I will, I will step back a little bit, um, but the, the over-celebration and praise of Constantine, I mean, and even, even Augustine, insofar as, uh, you know, he wants Christians to be involved in, in earthly government, uh, I would be in disagreement with him there. I mean, like, I'm a pretty much just like non-investor um, in po- it, it, like I just like feel like uh, it's basically my calling as a Christian is not to try to change you know earthly government um, and any time that a Christian tries to legislate by Christian principles I mean ultimately I think that they're going to have to um, succumb especially in a democracy uh, but they're going to have to pander to people that they disagree with. Um, and too strong of an identification of Christianity with government um, creates an insincere faith um, for those beneath it um, who feel like they're going to have to adhere to it because that is the uh, faith of the empire. Um, I just think that there is disastrous consequences of this over-identification of the kingdom of God with an earthly kingdom. Um, and, uh, And I'm very... That made, it's always made me very uncomfortable. So I get really frustrated with Constantine uh, because he's sort of the, the beginning of it and the embodiment of it. I mean, I I think there's some maybe a good argument there from like fruitfulness and uh, maybe the attitudes at least we see recorded in history. But I've always wondered, Chad, about like the unspoken, unwritten about laity that just in general we're still, you know, or even or even leaders in the church, you know, your average presbyter or bishop who in some city was still just, like, holding on to really authentic Christianity except now not getting killed and practicing freely. And in that way, I'm like, well, I'm glad this happened. But I also see your point. Like, there's a way in which this uh, ecclesiizing, I don't know if that's even a word, of the government, the making... Yeah, church-like of the government. Yeah, that definitely had negative effects, though, as well, on both, well, kind of both, on both the government and the church, weirdly. I think that the, I think, I mean, Chad, to to, to have that criticism, I think that that's very fair, that a lot of negative consequences take Christianity, which is fundamentally a a spiritual, I I almost don't want to call it a religion, um, just insofar as saying that the way that Christ teaches it so far it was not of, of Judaism, but it's very spiritual. Constantine is making it very legal, and I think that's absolutely um, a criticism there. Yet we can realize that there is something that we do in our own age. Um, we may call this secular Christianity. And so a secular Christianity is kind of like saying there's a necessary um, legislation that must result from this Christian faith. Um, the fact that we say we're all created equal and, and endowed by a creator with equal rights, that is the basis for the American Republic. 
And so if people want to just go ahead and knock out that creator part, they just knocked out a justification for uh, equal rights. Sure. I think that that's a proper role of Christianity is to to kind of offer this this very base foundation for some law. I think that um, I would agree that Constantine overstepped his boundaries absolutely. He, I believe, ultimately was naive. Um, this is more of just my my interpretation. Um, but naivety can bring about some negative ends. He wanted above all unity. This guy is a, a military general. That's how he thinks. So he comes into politics with a military mindset and say, okay, let's organize this like I organize my army. Let's go into the church. And unfortunately, he brought that mindset in as well. He sought unity above all. And when he fought and had spilt blood to unify the political empire, he was extremely frustrated that he saw dissension within uh, the Christian religion. And he, he couldn't believe it. He says, I, I just like unify this empire politically so that we can have this Christian religion flourish. And now in the East, he sees the uh, we'll just call it the Aryan schism, so to speak, this Aryan controversy. Um, and he was so frustrated. He's like, how ungrateful, how hypocritical. <laughs> like, you Christians are supposed to be the example of unity to us, and you guys can't even get along. So he mandated this Council of Nicaea, and it was fundamentally about um, bringing unity. And I'll emphasize that. It was not necessarily about promoting a specific creed from Constantine's perspective, it was about making sure that they had unity on whatever that creed may be. Yeah, and one of the scheduled readings I do have uh, uh, that I also really want to talk about is Constantine's place uh, in the Council of Nicaea. Um, and we're going to talk about it with another writing of Eusebius of Caesarea, um, and, uh, and we're also going to read some stuff from Arius. Um, but, but of course, this is one other part of Constantine's legacy that we have not discussed, but we will. Um, but uh, I think we're running low on time. Do we want to get any final comments in? I've, I think I've said my piece. I've, I've been contentious. Um, I've taken my position against uh, <laughs> uh, Constantine. Uh, if there are John Howard Yoder fans out there, uh, you know, that's where a lot of this comes from. But, uh, yeah. Final thoughts on Eusebius, uh, Eusebius's view of history. Anything else you want to add before we go? I think um, yeah. uh, just a, a good conclusion is to, and this will set us up for uh, what is to come, is if we remember viewing this um, from his mindset, um, from his age, with that emphasis on this notion of there being an end of an age, that'll help us understand it without being so maybe skeptical. Um, and that's why I, I made a big point about our modern perspective can sometimes make it difficult to understand um, Eusebius's philosophy of history. Mm -hmm. That's just a good idea with history, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. We appreciate you listening to our podcast. We'll be back next week with Tom Velasco as we discuss uh, Eusebius' oration in praise of Constantine. See you soon.